And let me extend my welcome to that of David's. My name is Ben, as you mentioned, I'm a pastor in training here. As we approach God's word, let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, Lord, by your spirit, help us. Lord, do we be so captivated by the beauty of Jesus and the wonder of the banquet he's invited us to, that we would be men and women who live lives that exalt your wonderful name. Would our time this evening be helpful to that end, we pray. In your name, amen. A few weeks ago, I had the joy of attending a banquet. It was the wedding of my good pals, Finn and Anna. And I'd be lying if I said, from the moment I was invited, I wasn't dead excited for the feast they promised. I mean, we're talking bougie canapes, a hog roast with all the trimmings, loads of different salads, three different puddings, a wedding cake, and if that's not enough, unlimited made-to-order pizza all night long. It was a feast. Here's the thing, though. That wasn't the best bit. The best bit was that we as guests got to dine in joy with the host themselves. It was a whole lot of fun. The invites had been spread out far across the country, and for all who had accepted, the hosts had pulled out all the stops. This was a banquet not to be missed. I'm sure you'll agree, I would have been crazy to turn down that offer, wouldn't I? Let me assure you, it was a really easy RSVP, and yet, I still had to count the cost. Had to work out how to get to deepest, darkest Oxfordshire. Accommodation was to be sorted. I was even going to have to wear my kilt and knee-high woolly socks on what felt like the hottest day of my life. And yet, such was the promise of satisfaction for stomach and self that there is no way I wasn't going to be there. So we jump back into Luke this evening. We continue to find ourselves in the physical setting of a meal. But this evening, Jesus is going to tell a parable of another, of a feast unrivaled. For all those in attendance will dine with God himself for an eternity. And so the question we're going to answer is, is who's going to be there? It's actually the question we've been answering for a few weeks, rooted over the page in chapter 13, verse 23, as someone asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And so as Jesus continues to unpack this response, he makes it clear to the Pharisees then and to us today exactly who will and who won't be at the Lord's banquet. And it is vital we understand because it is eternally significant. And so we've got two points this evening to help us unpack this. And the first is this. Attending the banquet, come when invited. We enter this passage this evening at what I can only imagine is the height of awkwardness. Jesus, whilst having dinner with the Pharisees, has just delivered a kind of three-punch spiritual combo. He's rebuked the Melizat while simultaneously exposing the pride and the hypocrisy of his hosts, the Pharisees. Awkward. The meal has been a disaster and the tension is palpable. And into the silence, one of the guests pipes up. Verse 15. When one of those at the table had heard this, he said to Jesus, 
Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Seemingly, and I kind of move to diffuse the tension, he makes what I'm sure he believes to be a really safe or even earnest statement. But again, it ironically highlights that this man, the Pharisees at the dinner, still don't understand who's going to receive salvation. They still don't understand who is going to dine in the kingdom of God. In fact, his statement in verse 15 provides a bridge back to last week. It mirrors what we saw. It echoes the kind of corporate, pride-filled confidence of the Pharisees. Because it has the underlying assumption that it's going to be men just like them that are going to be at the kingdom. And so Jesus against the backdrop the last few weeks of of Herod's hostility and the Pharisees' false religion, steps it up a level. And he pronounces judgment on those that the meal he's at, while simultaneously extending the invite to his banquet far and wide. And he does so by telling the parable. Read to me, verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who've been invited, come for everything is now ready. So a banquet's been prepared. It's clearly going to be a massive feast. Invites have gone out and many guests have been invited. Jesus is making reference to the great banquet, which he's already spoken of in chapter 13, verse 29. He's talking about the kingdom of God, heaven, This is the feast for all peoples referred to in our Isaiah passage. A feast unrivaled. And it's not just a meal. As the Pharisees would have understood, Jesus is describing a lavish, a sumptuous, heavenly future full of eternal joy and satisfaction with God himself. Now that, that's a banquet not to be missed. The invitation etiquette of the day kind of a little bit like a wedding today. You know when you go to a wedding, first you often receive a kind of save the date, that's your first invitation, and then closer to the time you receive a second invitation, often with some more details. Well, it's similar here. In the day, you would first um, be invited to come, and then once the food is good to go, the servant is sent out to gather everybody in, to tell them to come. Now, to refuse at this point, having accepted the first invitation, that's just downright rude. And yet, in this parable, we find those who'd accepted the first decline the second with a series of actually pretty pathetic excuses. Read to me in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Now, initially to our ears, these excuses might have a kind of ring of reasonableness about them. But to the Pharisees listening, these would have sounded seriously silly. Both in view of the banquet promise in the Old Testament, as well as just the rudeness that would have been in culture to decline the invitation. I must go see a field. Really? Where are you expecting it to go in the time it takes you to go and have a great party? Second is the man who's bought some cows. There's no doubt, right? Ten oxen, five yoke, that is a big expense. But that kind of amplifies the absurdity. 
No one's going to make such a big expense without first trying them out. The other day, I just bought a wee second-hand car. You better believe I tried out that banger before I parted with my money. How much more so if I was buying a Ferrari? The third excuse is not just insufficient, it is downright rude. Notice how, unlike the other two, this guy doesn't even ask to be excused. He simply states he's just got married. It's not like the wedding's today. He's already married. He thinks he's got everything he needs and doesn't mind being rude because of it. You see, however you look at it, these excuses are pretty lame, aren't they? Fundamentally, these are people who prefer possession and affection now over the invitation to something far, far greater. Just for a second, compare what they've been offered to what they've chosen. They forgo a sumptuous feast full of joy and laughter and satisfaction for a field, for a night with some cows, for a night with a spouse. Do you see, these things are totally incomparable. And likewise, this parable points towards an even greater mismatch. Jesus himself is offering entrance into his kingdom, a perpetual feast of joy, of rest, of victory over self, of supremacy over situation, a feast of tranquility, deathlessness, immeasurable hope, of salvation. And it's not purely something we've got to wait for. Eternal relationship with Christ is on offer now. Possessions and affections are good gifts from God. But if they become excuses to turn down relationship with him now and the feast to come, well, our thinking's absurd. And our souls are in danger. Because what's the result? Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. As the host hears of the rudeness of his guests, his anger is rightly justified. And yet, such is his generosity that it demands his feast must be attended. So do you notice, two more invites go out. First to the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. This is particularly striking in context because the physically disabled weren't even able to take part fully in temple worship. And yet notice, at Christ's banquet, they are not excluded, but personally invited by him. And yet there's still room. The invite is extended further. People far away are compelled to come in. I don't think Luke is making a purely Jew-Gentile distinction in these two invites as someone suggested. But I do think he's making the point that the invite goes out far and wide in all directions. The seats at the banquet must be filled, and they will be by all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, to the margins of society and beyond. 
Isaiah foretold that the bank would be filled with all people. And these are the people who are going to be like the great multitudes in Revelation 19, shouting, Hallelujah, our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory as they dine at the feast of the Lamb. I wonder if you noticed a link back to last week's sermon. If you haven't listened, go back and do so. Those who sought the best seat, well, they find themselves in no seat at all. Their silly excuses have serious consequences as blinded by their pride, they do not accept the invitation and are excluded from the banquet. And do you notice how the exact people they failed to invite find themselves at the feast of the king? Luke doesn't give us the response at the meal to Jesus' parable. But you can imagine if it was awkward before, it's unbearable now. The prideful custodians of the law the so-called leaders of Israel are doomed to judgment. They'd received and responded to the first invitation in the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writings, all pointing forward to Jesus and his banquet to come. But now that Jesus, the Messiah, is here, ushering them to come in, the feast is ready, they're having none of it. Will only a few be saved? No, from these verses. The feast will be full. The invitation has gone out wide. And yet the question for the Pharisees is the same as the question for us. Will you come when invited? Their excuses for failing to follow were exposed and the price was high. What's your excuse? Are our possessions and affections more important? Are we using the good gifts God has given as an excuse not to attend his future feast and to know him now? Perhaps we're putting it off to continue in a relationship that doesn't honor Christ. Perhaps we're thinking, well, we'll get round to that Christian stuff one day, but only after I've lived a little only after I've acquired X or achieved Y. Is Jesus clear? The banquet is ready and he has stepped into time that you might be invited. Do not gamble by missing the invite and being excluded from the kingdom. If you haven't already, you too can accept Jesus' invitation by recognizing his kingship. In fact, I'm compelling you to. Will you attend the banquet being offered to you? Jesus is clear. How you respond to him is the essential element. The invite is cast wide, but the call is narrow. Only those who accept his invitation, who stop living with self as king and accept Jesus' kingship as the Lord of the cosmos will be welcome. I wonder if that will be you today. If you've got questions about that, come and speak to me. I'll be down here after service. Likewise, if you call yourself a Christian, remember that we were the poor. The ones so far off in the distance, down an alley somewhere, that we couldn't even hear the party music. And so wonder afresh that Christ has rescued you from the extremities of your sin. That he has extended this invite and welcomed you to the banquet. Our part is insignificant. His love is immeasurable. And do we therefore continue to see the urgency in our evangelism, 
The banquet is ready and it will be full. Do we invite the marginalized, the society? Or do we only extend this invite to those who are like us? Who those we think are going to accept? Jesus' invite is wide and so should ours be. He's the host. His table is full. And just like we received the invite, but we were far off. We should extend this invite of the most glorious banquet imaginable to all. I wonder who that could be in your life this week. Someone, very likely tomorrow, is going to ask you how your weekend was. It is the lowest hanging fruit to not just say, it was all right, but try and tell them something of this glorious reality. If that sounds horrifically scary or you've got no idea where to start, again, let's chat. Let's role play it. Let's practice. Jesus is clear, though. To accept his invitation, we need to understand what we're getting ourselves in for, which is our second point. Being a disciple, count the cost. As we enter verse 25, we actually get a slight scene change. The meal is over, and Jesus is traveling with a crowd. And what comes next might at first seem a little bit at odds with what we've just heard. After telling how the invitation is extended wide, Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's punchy. And and following straight after the invitation to the banquet, I think is deliberate. Jesus has just taught what it means to accept his invitation. But first we've got to understand what it's going to look like for the long term. What it looks like to practically be a follower of Jesus. And so as we go into this section, we can't forget that Jesus' teaching here is set in the immediate context in our Bibles of this glorious picture of eternity of a feast in heaven with Christ himself, which he's invited us to, that any supposed cost compared to this reality pales into insignificance. We need to keep that truth right at the forefront of our minds as we continue. Because here Jesus maps out exactly what it looks like to be a disciple with the three times repeated phrase, cannot be my disciple. So firstly, true discipleship requires a change of allegiance. That's in verse number 26. Jesus, straight off the bat, is not saying you've got to hate your family. After all, right? Jesus tells us to love our father and mother, Mark 7. For husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5. Even to love our enemies, Luke 6. So he cannot be calling us to literal hatred of family and self. Love, care, and stewardship of those the Lord has given to us is essential. But... He is demanding a radical change of allegiance, which actually equates to a change of identity. It's a reordering of our priorities. Jesus is saying that our love of him must be so pervasive that our natural love of self and others doesn't even come close in comparison. In fact, that we love Jesus so much to the world looking in, it might almost look like we hate our families. 
I'm so aware that for some, this is already a brutal lived reality. For you are facing the cost of rejection for loved ones for your faith. Whilst I can't claim to know personally what that's like, I know for certainty with God's word that we're not instead pointlessly subordinating ourselves to a tyrant. We're loving Christ, the Lord of all, the one with all power and authority, and yet the one who loved us first, who's extended the invitation to his banquet while we were far off. This is the one we've got to put before all before whom all other relationships take second place. That's what being a disciple looks like. Luke steps up a level, though. Being a disciple means the death itself. Verse 27. Jesus says we're to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Liam last week encouraged us to praise him and be like him. Well, this is the ultimate end of that statement. It's the repeated and daily death itself. We're not putting Christ just before ourselves. We're called to die to ourselves, to put him before our worldly hopes and aspirations, before our reputations. And it's going to be hard. Yet we follow the one who knows our pain, for he lived it suffering every trial and temptation as he resolutely heads to the cross to death in the place of outcasts like me, where he will take our tattered, stained, and sinful self and clothe us in his righteousness alone, a garment worthy of the feast he's invited us to. And so Luke moves to from reminding us that it's going to be really hard to encourage us to count the cost for ourselves, reinforcing that discipleship does involve, thirdly, giving up everything. He uses two pictures to help us get a hedge on this. Um, verse 28, read with me. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. When you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you've got enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming at him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. I don't think it's a foreign concept to us that great reward requires counting the cost, is it? Think of like great athletes or explorers. Similarly, the builder has to properly cost his project or face regret and ridicule. I don't know if anyone ever watched that program, Grand Designs. We used to watch a lot in my house. My sister was a big fan. You might remember a guy went pretty viral his name was Edward Short. For in like 20-something series of this TV show, his project was dubbed the saddest ever. He tried to build a massive mansion on the coast of Devon, but failed to properly cost his project with brutal consequences. He was left with an unfinished home that he couldn't live in, seven million pounds of debt, his marriage collapsed, 
and he was left with a kind of monument to his misery. Left to face the ridicule of Devon as a whole, trust me, and the whole of the internet alike. Likewise, would-be disciples need to count the cost. It's self-explanatory. Similarly with the picture of the king. This time he doesn't have time and space to make his decision. Instead, faced with an army more powerful than his, twice the size of his, he's got to make a quick and logical decision to try and make peace, to surrender, not to fight a losing battle. Jesus is urging us to understand the worldly cost of discipleship. It's going to very likely involve being sacrificial with our money as we give to the Lord's work. It might involve turning down promotions or roles as we prioritize church and our church family. It might involve moving from the relative quote-unquote safety of Charlotte Chapel to another place to join a much-needed church plant. It might mean coming from the kind of extremities of consuming church to getting stuck in and being an active member and serving the church family here. It might mean facing the ridicule of friends and family. It's definitely going to involve leaving behind patterns of sin which promise so much but ultimately don't deliver. We're being told to recognize Jesus for who he is, the king of all, and submit to him. Not to keep fighting a futile battle, clinging on to sinful habits, trying to live for ourselves. Jesus is saying he's God's anointed ruler. The one we saw a couple of weeks ago who comes in the name of the Lord and we are to submit. When we see kind of anything of the kingship of Christ Jesus, when we understand anything of how his death and resurrection have defeated sin and death, when we understand anything of where the world is ultimately heading with his sure and coming return, we realize to try and stand and fight, well, that's just futile folly. Luke's made it clear, the cost of discipleship is real. We're to change our allegiance. We're to give up everything. We're even to die to ourselves. And so the question for all of us is, have we counted the cost and are we counting it still? If someone were to display up on there a beautiful bar chart of how you spent your time and your money this week, would they come to the conclusion that God or yourself are first? You need to be aware that the reality of the Christian life is hard, and to not count the cost could be catastrophic. But I think this is a huge encouragement, that the Bible speaks directly into our difficulty that the frailty we experience as Christians is to be expected, and it drives us to dependence and delight on the strength of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not trying to trick people into faith, promising sunshine and roses, but instead, as we're discipling and encourage others, we can assure them that through any circumstance, if they're in Christ, God himself died in their place and will hold them fast until a time of heavenly feasting arrives. Perhaps you dragged yourself to church today. 
And perhaps you're sat there and going, I'm just not sure it's all worth it. Well, I hope that whatever you think of Jesus this evening, just as the excuses didn't match the banquet promised, the Bible assures us that the cost does not come close to matching the splendor of Christ and what has been won for us in Christ. And neither are we alone, left to kind of grind it out until heaven. If we're in Christ, the very Spirit of God dwells in us today. Our eternal and right relationship with Him has already begun and can be enjoyed now regardless of circumstance. We've even been given by His grace a church family to disciple and be discipled by that by His Spirit we might be made into His likeness and mutually reminded of the joy that awaits at the heavenly feast. Our passage this evening ends with a verse about being salty. And it's not exactly the kind of salt we've got today. It would have been much more impure and used for a whole host of things as a preservative, seasoning, even as fertilizer in some cases. The point is, whilst it's salty, it's really useful. But as was the case back then, in the way that it was used, the salt could be washed out. And then you're just left with wee rocks. Useful for nothing, and then just rightfully discarded. It's perhaps a warning of national significance that whilst all Jews who respond to Jesus will be in heaven, judgment was common to Israel for not kind of being seasoning to the nations. But it's also significant, I think, to us in our context. Failure to pursue discipleship can indicate the faith was never actually present. And when it comes to the feast of the Lord, such people will be thrown out. But even as a Christian, commitment to Christ can deteriorate. While those in Christ can never lose their salvation, we can bear no fruit for the King, and that's a scary place to be. Discipleship is a serious business to Jesus. And to be a disciple, we must count the cost if by His grace we're going to complete the task before us and make it to the end as good and faithful servants. And yet, The disciple who is committed to Christ, who strives to exalt him before self and family and possession, doesn't live a life that's bland. It's one that brings vitality as it serves the Lord. Counting the cost of discipleship helps to produce saltiness that's useful and lasts for the long term. And so as we close in view of the invitation that we've been given to Christ's banquet, of that glorious picture of eternal joy. Let us count the cost of discipleship and be salty saints. Let's pray. Dear God, thanks for your word. Thank you that through Christ we can be invited to his banquet. Lord, please press these truths in our hearts, that we might be regularly reminded of Christ's work, and that we would come when invited by Jesus, being men and women who continue to count the cost of following him for all the days of our lives. May it all be for your glory. Amen. We're going to sing again, after which Andy is going to lead us in communion. Please stand.